Good evening, everyone, and welcome. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Reginald Harris, and I'd like to welcome you back to the uh, Pratt Library uh, for this evening's program with Josh Wheel. It's a very great pleasure uh, tonight to welcome Josh Wheel uh, to read from his new collection of novellas, The New Valley. The three linked novellas of The New Valley are set in the hill country between West Virginia and Virginia. Uh, focusing on the lives of three men, a soft-spoken middle-aged landscaper and beef farmer, struggling to hold himself together after his father's suicide, a single father trying to control his reckless, overweight daughter, and a mildly retarded man who falls in love with a married woman. Each story examines in a, a, a different aspect of relationships and love. These subtle, wonderfully written stories combine to create portraits of men struggling to create new lives as they fight against grief, solitude, and their own personal demons. And Mr. Wilde not only is an author, but also did the drawings, the technical drawings that are on the inside here, and also that also appear in the uh, second story, Stillman Wing. Stillman Wing. Josh Wheel was born in the Blue Ridge Mountains of rural Virginia. He has an MFA from Columbia and has received a Fulbright Grant Writers' Center Emerging Writers' Fellowship, the Dana Award, and fellowships from the Breadloaf and Swanee Writers' Conferences. The New Valley was honored with a 5 Under 35 Award by the National Book Foundation and won the 2010 New Writers' Award from the Great Lakes Colleges Association. In addition to his fiction, Josh Wheel has written nonfiction for the New York Times, Granta Online, and Poets and Writers. He's also the 2009 Reginald Tickner Fellow Writer-in-Residence at Gilman School. I am wearing my school tie here tonight. Where he is also, I assume, still at work on a novel, maybe, when the students let him get to it. Good for you. In awarding him the New Writers Award in Fiction, the judges from the Great Lakes Colleges Association noted, The New Valley is an amazing book. While it has a great gift for voice and description, and the stories captured in these pages are engaging, intense, and often riveting. Throughout, there is a sense of longing and compassion for each character. Easing us into the tormented lives of its protagonists, collection leaves us with something like wisdom. Wisdom we can't locate on a page or in a passage, but take away as we come away changed. And it is a very great pleasure to welcome Josh Wheel to the library. Thank you all for coming. It's really, really nice to read in Baltimore. Um, And I've gone all around the country doing a bunch of readings, and it's always a different thing to read in a city where you have some connection. And I've been here now teaching at Gilman since September, and so I've started to feel like I get to know Baltimore, and I love it. So it's especially nice to see all of you here and be able to read to you here. I also, my dad happens to be here, my dad and my stepmom. Um, so it's the first time I'll be reading with them in the room. And I was thinking about why I like reading to audiences, because a lot of writers hate it. Um, it's, you know, a lot of writers love to sit and kind of do their, their private writing. But when they're reading, it just is something that doesn't work for them. For me, I think that it goes back to the fact that I used to always uh, read out loud to my dad. And so I thought I'd bring that up since he's here. In fact, there's, I remember this one time I was 12 years old, and we were traveling around California together. We used to do these long car trips, and I'd always sit in the car and read these novels, you know, for hours and hours on end. And we were reading this um, young adult novel called A Day No Pigs Would Die. And I have this distinct memory of the two of us getting to the end, and it was a really sad book. And we both started weeping so hard. My dad, the tears rolling down his face, and I'm weeping. And we had to pull over to the side of the road and sit there for, you know, 15 minutes just weeping at the side of the road. We couldn't drive anymore. So... um 
I promise I won't I won't cry uh, reading to you, <laughs> and I won't even read anything that that uh, is any tear jerking stuff. Um, I did think I was trying to decide what I'd read, and I thought, well, it's the Poe Room. I should read something dark. Um, so I am going to read something dark, not scary, but dark. And it's from the first novella. There's not a lot that you have to know in preparation for it, except that the main character, Osby, has just returned home for the first time after his father's funeral, and his father had committed suicide in this old house. They have a new house and an old house. The old house is kind of the old family home that now is used for mostly storing farm supplies and stuff like that. Um, so I'll just pick up right, um, right when he first comes back from the funeral. By the time he got home, it was fully dark. The moon hadn't yet risen. There were no lights on in his house. He drifted past the driveway, wishing there was one more pasture to check on or something he had to do in town. Maybe he'd drive over to Carl's place just to say hello. It had been years since they'd sat on Carl's back porch, drinking beer and throwing sticks for his bird dogs. As he rounded the bend, his headlights sucked the old house's mailbox out of the night. It had collapsed against the giant chestnut stump, and the letters his grandmother had carefully painted were half gone. He braked, his ribs suddenly feeling too small for all the stuff that had to fit in his chest. Slowly, he turned onto the dirt. A few feet up, he stopped. The truck idled under him. Grass and weeds had grown between the tire tracks, and last spring's rains had gouged the driveway. Up the hill, beyond the reach of the headlights, the old house stood blackly against the stars, a hole in the sky. His home, the newer house he and his dad had lived in, had been built nearly a century ago, but the original family place, the old house, was twice that age, the walls in its living room still made of logs from the homesteader's one-room cabin. After his grandmother died, his father used the house for storage, bags of fertilizer, car batteries, cattle medicines. Osby flicked on his brights. The windows that still had glass flared. He hadn't been in there since the day he found his father. He could make out the glinting shape of Cortland's pickup parked at the top of the driveway. The front door to the house was still open. He'd forgotten to shut it, or the ambulance guys had, or the cops. They had come looking things over. There wasn't much guessing to do. Osby asked them not to clean it up, said he wanted to do it himself. It would help him seal the thing shut, he said, put a cap on it. When the neighbors offered to take care of things, he told them he'd already scrubbed and swept and burned what had to be burned. Truth was, he hadn't touched a thing in there. The idea of going, back, of going back in made his bowels go watery. The truck sputtered, and he gave it a little gas. Shook a cigarette out of a pack of Winstons, sat there smoking. He knew he ought to go up there and close that door. When Osby's mother died, his father hadn't let anyone help them take the body to the funeral home. They had wrapped her in the sheets and carried her downstairs, his father holding her under her arms, Osby clutching her cold ankles. She had smelled like old cabbage. Her body sagged, heavy as wet sand, his thin 12-year-old forearms strained, and he struggled to keep his fingers locked around her legs. Halfway down the stairs, he dropped her. Her heels thwacked the hard wood step, and he had thought how much that would hurt if she was alive. Outside, they hoisted her into the pickup and drove into town. His father hadn't even let people gather in the house after the funeral. He had refused the casseroles and cakes they brought. The next Saturday, Osby had helped him with the excavating job, and they had sat in the bulldozer's shovel out of the cold wind, passing a thermos of steaming coffee between each other. Ain't going to have him walking all over our place, Osby's father had said. Big show. 
And a week later in the kitchen digging shotgun pellets out of a rabbit with the tip of a knife. When I go, I don't want no noise, but noise about it. Don't want the whole of them traipsing around, tearing up the driveway, snooping around the old house, just dig a hole and dump me in. When he'd finished the cigarette, Osby rolled down his window, tossed out the butt, shoved down on the clutch, and put the truck in first. Behind the old house, Bowman's Ridge, solid and black, smothered the bottom edge of the sky. After a while, his left calf muscle started to shake. He shifted into reverse, backed up onto the road, and drove home. Quiet smothered the bang of the truck door almost as soon as he shut it behind him. He could hear the night animals moving around, small birds, opossums, squirrels, making crackling noises too big for them in the dry leaves. They went silent as his feet made their, noises, their noise from the truck to the porch. Inside, the house had gone cold. Osby clomped into the kitchen, opened the flue on the wood stove, and stirred up the remaining coals, watching them feed on the draft. When they were glowing, he shoved a couple overnight logs on top, waited for them to catch, and then shut the stove up and let it go to work. He scanned the twenty-odd cans lined up on the kitchen counter. He and his father never bothered putting the soup in the pantry. That was for things they bought on a whim and ended up never looking at again. Things like cake mixes or cloves of garlic, things that needed what Osby and his father called major preparation. Cans of soup, cans of beans, cans of cranberry sauce, jars of pickles. Those things were useful. They stayed on the counter where they could be got at. Osby chose a can of chicken and dumplings, shaking his head a little at all the clam chowders. His father had loved this stuff. Osby couldn't stomach it. Now he was stuck with a dozen cans. He rinsed a saucepan under the faucet, using his thumb to rub away most of the crust left from last night's soup, dumped in tonight's chicken and dumpling, lit the stove burner with a match, and got out the bowls and spoons. The kitchen opened up upright into the living room, and Osby went in there, turned on the TV, and watched the weather report while he unbuttoned his shirt and tugged it off his arms. Not wanting to put his good shirt on the floor with the rest of his clothes, he held it in one hand while he took off his shoes and pants, then held those bunched in the other arm while he listened to the forecast for the next day. There was a slight chance of snow. Hope not till afternoon, Osby said aloud to the empty house, feeling foolish immediately afterwards. When he heard the pot spinning soup, he hurried into the kitchen, dumped his clothes on the counter, and emptied the chicken and dumplings into a bowl. For a second, he stood perplexed, staring at the second bowl. He didn't remember taking out two. He put the extra bowl and spoon away and took his soup into the living room to finish watching the local news. It was still cold in the house. The heat from the wood stove never really reached all the way into the living room, and he turned on the electric space heater, pulled it close to the couch, sat in his underwear and T-shirt and the brown socks that looked strange to him on his feet, slurping the soup while the space heater's warmth started to tingle on his skin. An hour or so later, during the ads between two sitcoms, he glanced to his side to see if his father had fallen asleep yet. The other end of the ratty, brownish-orange couch was, of course, empty. Seeing it, he tried to feel whether he missed the old man. He couldn't tell. He lay down, stretching his legs out all the way along the couch. True, it felt odd to do that. He tried to picture his dad sitting there where his feet were now. It should have been easy. After all, Cortland had sat there nodding off practically every, every evening since Osby was a kid. But he couldn't picture him. When he looked back at the TV, he thought he saw his father's face looking in at him through the window. Not as he looked in life, but as Osby had found him three days ago in the old house, his lower jaw and half his right cheek blown off, one eye exploded in its socket. Osby made himself stay still and stare at the window, where there was nothing but his own reflection, until his heart had gone back to thumping like normal. Then he scraped up the last of the soup, sighed, carried the bowl to the sink. As he clinked it against the other dishes, he had a sudden urge to wash them all, to wipe down the counters, get the place clean. 
He filled the sink, watching the steam billow up through the soap bubbles. Through the window, he could see the occasional pair of headlights drift along Route 33 a couple miles off down the valley. After they were out of sight, he could still follow their progress for a while, watching for the patches of hillsides swept briefly by the faint yellow glow. He wondered if he was going to be lonely now. He didn't see why he should be. His father had never been much for company. He didn't think he was lonely. He scrubbed at a bowl. He hadn't gotten even one dish washed yet, and spent the next couple minutes picking at dried pieces of partially burned rice welded to a pot. When he was done, he decided that he probably was just lonely. Maybe he even missed his dad. That would be normal. But he didn't feel like calling anybody or driving the half hour into Pembroke to go get a drink and play some pool at ten points. He didn't feel like visiting Carl. Even the TV, he realized, was bugging him. He went to the living room and turned it off, leaving soap subs on the knob. When he came back to the sink, he put his hands in the water. It wasn't warm anymore. He ran some more hot water through the tap, and listening to it thunder in the sink, watched another pair of headlights wander through the distance. He wondered who it was out there, if it was someone he knew or not. It didn't really matter. He stared at the almost clean pot in his hands. The rice he'd scrubbed off, his father had made that rice. His father had eaten half of it. He wondered how long it would take for him to quit thinking about his father. In some ways, he felt he had already begun. He wondered how long people would remember him if he, were to, if he were to go out to the old house tonight and blow his head off. Not long, he thought. Yeah, he said out loud, I guess I'm just lonely. And I'll just skip a little bit uh, ahead to the next morning uh, and one more scene. By the time the sun was over the ridge, Carl Veltri had already been up for three hours. He had milked the Holsteins before Lynn was awake, washed down the milking house while kids were eating breakfast, and brought the school bus around the, to the house just as Lynn handed lunch bags to their two boys and sent them down the driveway. For the last 40-odd minutes, he had nursed the aging bus along winding back roads, practically standing on the gas pedal to get it to crawl up the steep hills, and stopping at all the least convenient places, blind corners, the very bottoms of long climbs, to pick up kids as young as five and as old as 19, an age bracket that on mornings like this Carl understood as the widest range of possibilities for obnoxiousness that the school system would allow. Hey, you all, he shouted to the wide, to the wide oblong mirror that framed pretty much the whole bus. Whoever threw whatever that was I saw come from somewhere back there, are you smiling at me? Whoever that was better not be smiling and better not do it again neither. He pressed his hand to the windshield in front of him, slowly enlarging a clear spot in the foggy glass. The defroster had been working yesterday when he didn't need it. Any day now, he figured the Virginia Board of Education was going to vote to include colicky one-year-olds and divorced, depressed, middle-aged dope addicts on welfare in the Eads County school system only. How about everyone, he shouted back at the entire bus, tries one whole minute of sitting still and shutting up. His stomach growled. He set the bacon and ham sandwich on his lap and unwrapped the cellophane with one hand, stopping a couple times to shift. He was about to ask his two boys sitting in the seat beside, behind him what their mom had made them for breakfast. It was a question he asked every morning in a poorly disguised bid for sympathy. When he saw a man standing in the fresh sunlight at the side of the road, one arm out, like someone flagging down a ride. Dad, Luke, his youngest kid, said in his ear, I see him, he said. Oh, man, Brian groaned. Brian was 12 and embarrassed by everything. It just about killed him that Carl made him sit up front with his brother. Having, put, having to put up with his father driving the bus was bad enough, but when occasionally Osby Caudill, who was the biggest loser of all of his dad's loser friends, got on to chat, Brian couldn't contain himself. Can you just, can't you just pretend you didn't see him, he said. 
No, Carl said in a voice that he knew would quiet Brian. I can't. Through the windshield, especially though he wished, especially this morning, that he could. It wasn't that he didn't like Osby. He liked him fine. They'd been friends since high school, more than 20 years. Maybe that was the problem. All his other friends he'd made in his years after high school, working on construction or because of Lynn or through the school where Brian and Luke went, Osby just didn't quite fit in anymore. Maybe Carl thought, as he brought the bus squealing to a stop in front of Osby's driveway, he never had. He was always a bit of a loner, a sad sack. Lynn called him a mope. She made it clear she'd rather not have him over to dinner. He just sits there, she'd said. Antisocial, comes to visit and just eats. What kind of example is that for the kids? Oh, he was still a good hunting buddy, but recently, hell, for the past three, four years, it had been more obligation than anything else that kept Carl friends with Osby. These days, Carl always felt a sense of guilt being around him, so that more and more he found himself avoiding Osby and resenting it when he just showed up, like now, as if it were the old days. Plus, Carl thought, what am I supposed to say to him, especially now after all that with his old man? Osby chuckled quietly to himself, waved his hand a little as the bus slowed, remembering the three or four years after high school when he'd stand at the bottom of the driveway just like now, and wait for Carl to come up the road and in, a, in the souped-up silver-gray Dodge D-100 they'd fixed together. He'd gun the motor as Osby got in, and they'd roar off, the sun not even up yet, nothing between them and the job site but an hour and a half of open road, the tunes blasting from Carl's radio, the fresh coffee and fried apple fritters they'd picked up at the Hart's Run store, Good fritters, Alva Linton herself made herself, good time to talk. They'd talk of the women in Carl's life, the best buyer for their beef, where they'd try for turkey that weekend, smoking, shouting over the wind, whipping in through the open windows, the penthouse pet air freshener twirling from the rear view. Those were some of the best times in Osby's life, good money too, working construction. He was feeling lucky all of a sudden. He could still come down here 15 years later, wait at the driveway, and hop on with Carl to talk even if it was a school bus now. When Carl stopped and he got on, Osby felt the whole bus go suddenly quiet, 30 pairs of kids' eyes staring at him. Hey, he said to Carl, climbing, up the, climbing the steps. Hey, Carl grinned at him. You in the first grade or the second grade? I don't know, Osby fired right back, trying not to smile. Mama just said to get on the bus. They both grinned. It was an old routine, same thing every time, built in comfort. Whatever question Carl asked, did you remember your lunch? Has your daddy been whooping you? Osby always answered, I don't know. Mama just said, get on the bus. Some years ago, they had thought that was hilarious. Now they grinned because not to grin would have been admitting something neither one could bring himself to admit just yet. You boys slide across the aisle, Carl said, though his sons were already moving. Osby squeezed into the seat behind the drivers. The kid noise started filling the bus up again, moving from back to front. The sun painted the windshield with glare. Carl leaned forward as if that would let him see better, and behind him, Osby leaned forward too, out of habit. They stopped and picked up kids and drove on and stopped and picked up more. Osby didn't say anything, just watched the kids when they got on, nodding at, nodded at them. They looked surprised when they saw him. They looked at him the way they looked at adults. That still felt odd to him. The bus rounded the hilltop bend and started down the long drop toward Hart's Run, a shuddering beneath the seats as Carl shifted to a lower gear. They passed the old schoolhouse, half-hidden behind scrub trees grown up in the yard where long ago Osby and Carl had played. It was where they'd first met. Five, six years old, something about a tractor tire, Osby remembered, one of them sitting on it holding the chains it hung from, calling out for the other to come give him a spin. He didn't remember how they'd gone from that to inseparable. But he remembered the guilt he'd felt later, when his mother died, 
how he had skipped school to help with the burying, and all during the funeral he kept thinking of what Carl was up to, missing his friend instead of her. He tried to catch a glimpse of the place through the trees, some rusty poles, maybe some dangling chain busted loose from what it once held, but there was barely time to take out the brick beneath the knitting of, to make out the brick beneath the knitting of brown vines. The high windows shot through with missing panes before it was behind them and hidden near the hill. You want a bite? Carl said. He held his greasy sandwich up near his head. Osby thought there was a hint of annoyance in his voice, but he figured Carl just didn't want to give up part of his breakfast. No, you go ahead, he said. That was it for a while. Osby sat looking at Carl's greasy hair and deep creased neck in front of him. He could smell Carl. It was a familiar smell, kind of sour, but sweet too, like spoiled milk heated up in a saucepan, and Osby tried to breathe it in without showing that he was. The whole bus smelled like people. It was steamy from them. Sitting there, Osby thought that he could forget for a while the feeling lodged in his guts, impassable, that seemed to grow leaden when he was alone in his house. When they were off the last of the back roads and gaining speed on 33, Carl said, What can I do for you, Chief? The question threw Osby. He couldn't very well say, Let me sit here with you and smell the kids. Something on your mind, Carl persisted. Something I can help you with. And then, reluctantly, as if out of duty, You holding up okay? You know, Dad, Caudill, and all? Oh, yeah, Osby said, as if they were talking about a sprained ankle. Sure, you know. He was conscious of Carl's boys across the aisle, Brian, and Brian staring moodily out the window, Luke sitting there watching Osby hard. He didn't mind the boys' stare. It was nice to be looked at to feel someone's eyes on you once in a while. What'd you do with that 59 Dodge, Osby asked, with sudden eagerness, leaning a little over the back of Carl's seat. That old gray D-100, Carl said. Yeah, Osby said. You remember how we fixed her up? Carl nodded, stared straight ahead. She was a beaut, huh? Osby said. You still got her? Yeah. Back there with the others, Osby said, up near them woods, back there next to that spring box, I'd love to fix her up. What do you think? How bad off is she anyway? Pretty bad, Carl said. You think we could fix her up? Oz, Carl said, you know you could get me in trouble coming on the bus like this. Osby watched the back of Carl's head. His neck was stiff, his shoulders tensed, both hands gripping the steering wheel. I mean, Carl said, if you got something to talk about, all right, you know, but if it's just, I mean, I'm not supposed to pick up anybody but kids. You know that, right? Carl's eyes flicked up to the mirror, but when Osby saw them looking at him, they darted back to the road. Yeah, Osby said quietly, I just thought I'd say hi. Well, Carl's laugh was strained. You got a telephone, don't you? Yeah, Osby tried to chuckle too, but he couldn't do it. Boy, he said, I'll tell you, I never realized what a big house that is. You know what you need? Carl's voice was suddenly loud as if he was trying to smother his previous words. You need to rent that house out. He looked at Osby in the mirror again, and this time his eyes stuck. Yeah, I'm serious. Get you a renter. Move in with you. Get some dough. Fill up the place. Hell, Oz, I know how it is. Yeah, Osby said, I don't think... You get a renter, Carl cut in. You take out an ad and the Eagle, put up a sign or two around town, get you a renter. Well, no, I don't listen, Carl said. Yeah, Osby said, I just don't think that's it. Listen, Carl said, the best time of my life was before I got married. Don't go looking for a woman. Carl bounced the seriousness in his eyes off the mirror and down to Osby. You don't need that. Oh, I wasn't, Osby started. You're lucky, Carl said. You're in a lucky spot. When I went off and worked crew on the job down in Virginia Beach, lived down there for a year, you remember that? You stayed on with your dad, you remember? And I went down to Virginia Beach, and me and the four other boys from the crew rented a place down there, four of us. Best time of my life. Osby watched his friend's face in the mirror. It was beaming. He hadn't seen it like that in a long time. You got your renter, Carl said. Best time of your life. The idea crept up unwanted on Osby. Is that how he looks around his other friends? 
when he's not around me? Yeah, Osby said. All right. He sat back in his seat. It seemed to him that if he reached out and tried to put his hand on Carl's head, his arm wouldn't reach even halfway. Osby looked across the aisle at Luke. The boy was still staring at him. They looked at each other, both their faces blank as if they were separated by clear plexiglass. Osby had the feeling that if he spoke to Luke, the boy wouldn't be able to hear him, as if the boy, and if the boy said something, Osby would just see his mouth moving dumbly. Osby turned in his seat and looked at the bus full of kids behind him. Every one of them has a daddy, he thought. Thirty fathers out there. He thought that maybe if he had a kid, a child, his child, if he were responsible for a baby, a baby connected to him by his own blood, dependent on him, the idea was so strange in his mind, it's so strange his mind backed off from it, drifted aimlessly over the faces of the school kids. The whole bus full looked back at him. It was as if that plexiglass wall had extended, curved, and circled him, so that now he was encased in it. In front of him, Carl was talking about that year he'd lived in Virginia Beach with all those guys. Yeah, Osby said, quieting Carl in the middle of a sentence. That Dodge was a beaut, though, wasn't she? And I'll stop there. Thank you.